morning. What an honor and privilege to be here and to share with you all today. Uh, to be able to worship with you and also to be able to worship, I mean, to, to witness the baptism that we just shared in together. And what a privilege to, for a, a grandfather to be able to do that. You know, brother, I've often said that if I'd known the grandchildren were so great, I would have had them first. You know, and uh, many agree. And, and also an old friend, uh, Chris Gregus, is another grandfather, is here as well. He and I go way back, and uh, so it's great to be here. I am, today I am sharing in a second of four messages on the life of Peter. As uh, you know, those of you who attend here regularly, Pastor Phil is preaching a series on, on 1 Peter, and so I have the opportunity to come in and insert uh, just a little bit more on the life of Peter himself. So today I am doing that as well. So once again, I want to thank Pastor Phil and the session for the opportunity to do this. And this morning I'm going to be preaching on Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that passage. And this morning we're going to be looking at the life of Peter of where he goes from a mountaintop experience to the valley, where his impetuous nature led him into trouble. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. So as we do that, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for this time to worship today. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to celebrate in uh, this baptism together of where we celebrate a new life that you bring and are reminded once again of the awesome responsibility of parents, of grandparents, of fellow members of the body of Christ sharing together in the raising of our little ones. And so we pray for your blessings on this family, for your blessings on this church family, on its leadership and its pastor and, and other leaders. And Lord, we also thank you for this opportunity to look into your word today. And Father, may your word speak to our hearts and may we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 16 begins with two incidents that on the surface don't appear to relate to the life of Peter. However, as we, we're going to just briefly touch upon these incidents, and we're going to see that these incidents provide a deeper understanding of what Peter does and what he says in this passage. The first incident is found in Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. So I'm not going to read these verses, but just follow along with me as I touch upon them. What we have in this first incident are the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together to seek to test Jesus by asking for a sign. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were hostile towards one another. And so it really is unique that they come together, and in this passage of Scripture, they are introduced as the Pharisees and Sadducees. So from this passage and from that word, it appears that they are united together 
as they seek to test Jesus. You'll notice in uh, these first several verses that Jesus rebukes them by saying that they were able to discern the weather by looking at the signs in the sky, but they were poor theologians and not reading the signs of the times. Notice also in these, these verses, he refused to give them a sign because he calls them an evil and adulterous generation seeking for a sign. He says they were evil. The word for evil is poneros, which doesn't just simply mean to be bad in character, but to be bad in effect, in the way they affect others around them. He also says not only were they evil, but they were adulterous, meaning that they were married, but yet they were impure. And this, of course, is the word that is used of someone who is unfaithful to their spouse. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees, their apostasy and their idolatry are, idolatry are described as adultery. So what does Jesus do? He turns his back and he leaves them. He does so because in this action, he's saying that they're hopeless and incorrigible. The second incident occurs starting in verse 5 of chapter 16. Right after that incident, the disciples come with Jesus to the other side of the sea, and they forgot to bring food. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them a lesson about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice what he says in verse five. Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. To beware, it means to be alert, to be on guard. Remember, Jesus says this to them right before we are looking at what he has or what happens with Peter. He also warns them about the leaven. The leaven is something that passes silently and secretly through the dough as it's being prepared. You can't see the process by which it spreads. And so what Jesus is doing is he's telling and warning the disciples to beware of the evil influences of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So read with me in verse seven. This is what the text says. However, the disciples began to discuss this among themselves. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Thinking that Jesus was talking about their forgetting to bring bread. But in verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Verse 9, do you not understand, not yet understand? What Jesus says here is, you don't understand. This means that you're slow on the uptake or you're slow to understand. Sometimes what's what our wives say about us husbands, you know, about men. We're sometimes slow to pick up things. We didn't get that hint. We didn't get that suggestion. So what does Jesus do in verse 11? He repeats himself and he says once again, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice verse 12. Then they understood. Finally, the light bulb comes on. It literally means that it's like they put the pieces of the puzzle together. 
Oh, you're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What were some of the influences, influences of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus warned them about? What he was warning them about was their legalism, their hypocrisy, their rationalism, their materialism, their immorality, their worldliness. And the disciples were to keep their eyes open and alert to their influences creeping into their fellowship and in their lives. So with that as an introduction, look with me in verse 13 as we begin to look at the life of Peter in this chapter. And by the way, this is the big, your big idea this morning. This is what I want you to get. The main, main thing I want you to get out of today's message as it relates to your life and mine. Your faithfulness, my faithfulness to Jesus is dependent upon whom you and I believe him to be. Our faithfulness is dependent upon who we believe Jesus to be. Look in verse 13. Now Jesus, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This discussion took place in Caesarea Philippi. It didn't take place in a Jewish part of, uh, of that land. It took place in a Gentile area. And Caesarea Philippi had been the center of the worship of Baal and then of Caesar. It was an important Greco-Roman city with a pagan population. And so when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? They responded by saying, well, Jesus, they view you as another man. Essentially, that's what they were saying. Typical responses of people in how they have viewed Jesus. But then notice Jesus, what, it, what Jesus says. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I submit to you this morning that this is one of the most important questions you or I can ever answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you believe him to be? I submit to you that the way you answer this question will determine your heritage and also where you will spend eternity. Do you remember the big idea this morning? Your faithfulness to Jesus is dependent upon whom you believe him to be. Notice Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Peter answers for the group, but he also answers with a personal confession. He answers with a confession that expresses a personal faith in Christ. Notice the two things that he says about Jesus here. First in verse 16, he says, 
that you were the Christ. By saying the Christ, Peter is saying that you are the Messiah or the anointed one. This is a new development in the Gospels. Up until this point, Jesus had not been acknowledged as the Messiah, but now Peter affirms, his, affirms him as the Messiah. Notice the second thing that Peter says. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that I said that this takes place in Caesarea Philippi, a very pagan area where they worship pagan gods, where they worshiped idols. Yet Peter says, you are the son of the what? The living God. He's living. He's the source of life. This separates him from the other idols. And unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Peter did not need a sign to know that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. This had been revealed to him by God the Father. And I submit to you, in this declaration, this first part of this message today, we see that Peter is being faithful. He is faithfully declaring who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17 in response to Peter's confession. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The first thing that we see in Jesus' response is, Peter, you were blessed by this confession. The word blessed comes from makairos, which not only describes an outward appearance, but an inner state. In other words, knowing Jesus as the Messiah meant that Peter was blessed inside as well as outside. He goes on, Jesus goes on to say that Peter's statement was not revealed by natural means, but by supernatural means. God the Father had removed the veil regarding Jesus' identity and revealed it to Peter and the other disciples. And then notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I confess early on, as I came to see what I was preaching on today, and I realized I was given this text I thought to myself, how in the world am I going to explore all of this in the time that I have this morning? Just to assure you, I will not. I will not. There's been a lot of discussion, a lot written about this verse, and in my humble opinion, a lot of misunderstanding about what Jesus is saying in this verse. So for our purposes today, I'm going to cop out and I'm going to just point out a couple different things. If you like, we can discuss it more afterwards. I would love to engage with you. First, I want you to notice, and you've probably heard this before, that the word for Peter comes from the Greek word petros, which means what? A small stone, okay? 
Peter is referred to by Jesus as a small stone. And then Jesus says, secondly, upon this rock, I will build my church. The second word for rock is Petra. Those of you old CCM music fans, Petra. What a great band. We're not going to get into that this morning. Okay, I have, I've listened to a lot of Petra in my life, and I exposed Scott to that pretty, yes, he as well. Petra, as opposed to the word for Peter, Petra, means a massive rock or a massive boulder. One, com- one commentator observed this. He says, Peter, by his own testimony, did not see himself as the rock on which the church was founded. So in other words, when Jesus says, Peter, you are Peter, but on this, this small rock, but upon this rock, massive boulder, I will build my church. Jesus was referring to himself. And Peter, by his own testimony, acknowledged that because in 1 Peter 2, I think you all have been through that passage, 1 Peter 2, verses 2 through 4, Peter described that we are what? Living stones. But Jesus is the what? The cornerstone. Okay, and then notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Once again, a lot of misunderstanding about this passage, but I will note here that nothing here suggests that Peter is given the authority to forgive men of their sins, nor does it mean that Peter was given the privilege to open the way to heaven to people. You know those jokes of about uh, people dying and then meeting St. Peter at the gates. This is not what is being referred to in this passage. Peter and the, the apostles were not to determine if someone was forgiven or not. Zwingli, the great uh, writer and theologian, said this, the keys are the preaching of the gospel and the binding and loosing means that whoever believes this gospel will be free of its sins and will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be damned. So the keys are the preaching of the gospel, and the binding and loosing are whoever believes this gospel will be set free of their sins. And so the disciples were given the responsibility to declare the judgment of heaven based upon the principles of the word of God. And then he strictly charged, notice in verse 20, He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, just a quick example here. I think we at least have one, maybe a few more of you this morning are involved in construction. Today, when you construct a new building, you don't use a cornerstone as they did in Jesus' day but you probably use concrete and re- to reinforce the concrete, you use steel. In Jesus' day, when they built a structure, they used a cornerstone to provide the foundation upon which to build. Jesus is described as the chief cornerstone of our faith. Remember, Peter, small stone. Jesus, massive stone. And so... The disciples were given the responsibility to declare the gospel. 
So after this great confession, move on down with me to chapter 16, verse 21, and look at how the text continues. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you remember Jesus' warning earlier in Matthew 16? of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It looks like Peter forgot that pretty quickly, didn't he? You see, when Jesus said that he needed to go to Jerusalem and describe that he would suffer and be killed and raised on the third day, from the text here we see that Peter pulled him aside and then privately rebuked him. Now, Peter, we, we get from reading the Gospels that pre, Peter was pretty impetuous, wasn't he? But the audacity to think that one of the disciples would pull Jesus aside and privately, privately rebuke him, I think is pretty astounding. The word to rebuke here literally means this, to put honor upon and then to find fault with. To put honor upon, and then to find fault with. Peter privately says, far be it from you, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. What did, you, what did Peter respond so strongly to? What he responded strongly to was the fact that Jesus said, he was going to suffer. Now, one commentator I read said, you know, we really shouldn't be too hard on Peter because think about it. If one of your close friends, one of your relatives, someone that you love dearly shares with you that they are terminal, they have a terminal disease, what would you say? No way. This can't be happening to you. This is how one commentator describes what Peter did. I believe that Peter's underlying motivation was commendable because he didn't want Jesus to suffer. He didn't want Jesus to be killed. He didn't want this to be a part of the plan. But I also believe that this is where Peter made him, his mistake and why Jesus responded so strongly. Even though he had made this amazing confession a few moments before, you know what he wanted? He wanted the Messiah on his own terms. He wanted the Messiah on his own terms. You know, Peter had just heard Jesus call him the rock. Now, he knew that he wasn't a massive stone, but he was also the rock 
And so I would think, in my humble opinion, Peter is thinking not, he wasn't proud of himself, but I think he was thinking, hey, Jesus just commended me for something, and now he's sharing some bad news with us, and I don't like that news. So based upon that, he, he acted with greater familiarity than he should have towards the Messiah. Notice Jesus' response. Look with me in verse 23. Jesus responds very strongly. He says, get behind me, Satan. By the way, also in verse 23, it says that Jesus turned. I think, now we don't have the exact picture of what happens here, but I think what happened is that when Jesus, when he hears what Peter says, maybe he wasn't looking squarely at Peter, but what he does is he turns and he looks squarely at Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. It's pretty tough, isn't it? To go from someone that you are treating with great familiarity to rebuke him, to rebuke Jesus, and then have Jesus to turn and rebuke you, rebuke you is pretty tough to swallow. He says, get behind me, Satan. This is, this is exactly the phrase that Jesus, Jesus uses in the temptation when Satan was tempting him early in the Gospels. This is the exact phrase that Jesus uses towards Peter. And he's saying, Peter, you are doing Satan's work by rebuking me. He goes on to say, you're a hindrance to me. This word hindrance is the word scandalon, which literally means a stumbling block. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, right at this moment in the way you respond, you are responding, you are acting as a tool of Satan. You're acting as a tool of Satan. And then he goes on to say, you're not setting your mind, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, what Peter was thinking is, he was thinking self-preservation. He didn't want to escape suffering and death. Years ago, I had the privilege to pastor a church in Turnersville. And I learned before I came there, one of the deacons, his son, wanted to become a missionary. In fact, he told his dad, I want to become a missionary. You know what his father said? A deacon, a leader in the church. There's no money in that. Why don't you go find a job where you can make some money? Isn't that sad? I submit to you, that father was being a tool of Satan. Now he was concerned about what was best for his son, but still, I think he was acting as a tool of Satan. Someone has said that Peter the rock had just become Peter the rock to stumble over. Isn't that true? Just think about that. Just think about that. I'm going to go on. Let me just very briefly touch upon this last thing and then I will close because I'm running out of time here. Notice, we could, we could explore this so much more, but, then, but notice what Jesus says to his disciples right after this. By the way, some texts suggest that he called the crowd around him as well. He then said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? For what shall it mean to give, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I submit to you that Jesus shares this, what it means to a disciple, in response to Peter's misunderstanding. I submit that he wanted, Jesus wanted to correct a false understanding of what it means to follow him. Some translations here, now I'm not an expert in Greek, but some translations in this verse say, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's how they translate the first part of what Jesus says here. I submit to you that that's probably not the best way to understand what Jesus is saying. Instead, I would submit that it literally means whoever has a strong desire to follow me. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's correcting Peter's misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple. Peter's misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple is that you can be a disciple but not have to suffer. That's the kind of discipleship Peter was reflecting here. Jesus explains otherwise. And he explains otherwise by saying two things that I won't get into in depth but just merely point out. The first thing that Jesus says is if you want to be one of my disciples, you need to deny yourself. It means to set aside your own interests in exchange for God's interests. And then he goes on to say, if you want to be one of my disciples, you need to take up your cross and follow me. The cross was a public uh, means of executing criminals, as you know. It was physically torturous and socially humiliating. Socially humiliating. Isn't that what it's like to be a Christian today in our culture? Many would tell us, you, you say you follow Christ? Wow, how foolish. And then some of us are socially humiliated. Jesus is putting in their minds that to follow him means to embrace suffering and shame. I'd like to close with this example. Some of you remember, may remember the story of Corey Ten Boom, the Christian who she gave her life to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. I don't know how many of you know the story of her father. His name was Casper Ten Boom. Casper became very troubled at one point because he found out that their pastor, his pastor, refused to take in a Jewish child and hide that child for fear of consequences of what would happen to him. Casper was very disappointed in the actions and the choice of his father. For Casper, the greatest honor he and his family could ever have would be to surrender their very lives to save Jews from the Holocaust. Later, after Casper 
was arrested for doing that very thing, one of the guards said that if he refused to do that any longer, he would be released. And this is because Casper was getting older and, his, and his, had become very fragile. This is what Casper said. If I go home today, tomorrow I will open my home to anyone who knocks on my door for help. Isn't that awesome? So you know what? They didn't let him go. And Corey Ten Boom's father died in prison. That is what he chose. He demonstrated to his children that their personal physical safety paled in comparison to obeying and living for the glory of God. He also displayed the willingness to deny himself and take up his cross. And I submit to you that that's the lesson from Peter in this passage. By the way, you know, Peter really got it because in Philippians 4, 1 and 2, I'll close with this. This is what Peter says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Even though Peter went from the mountaintop to the valley, said something very foolish, he finally got it. He realized that to follow Jesus meant to deny himself and take up his cross. And I submit to you that that's the challenge for us today. Your faithfulness to Jesus is dependent upon whom you believe him to be. Today, I pray that all of us here know Jesus as the Messiah and as our Savior. And I pray that each of us are learning to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray as the worship team comes up to close. Father, we thank you for this time today. We thank you for the life of Peter. Lord, we thank you for the series that this congregation has been going through and first Peter to understand what it means to suffer and to be a disciple. Today I pray that as we make uh, grand and faithful confessions of our faith and as our faith is challenged in the marketplace, out in the world, may we be faithful to choose to suffer and not to shrink back and hide our faith as a result. May we learn to deny ourselves and to daily take up our cross and follow you. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.